you would, please take your Bibles out and turn them over to the book of Daniel. We resume our study there this morning in Daniel chapter 10. We will start chapter 10 this morning. That's the last time I was with you, or the last time we were in Daniel, we finished up chapter 9. Last Sunday, of course, Rachel and I were away. We were visiting another church as we were celebrating our 20th anniversary. And um, as we always do when we go to another church for a Sunday morning worship, it's always nice to be with God's people, but we miss our God's people. So we missed y'all last week. We were able to worship with my cousin and his wife at their church. And um, well, as Dorothy says, there's no place like home. So we are glad to be back home with our family. Uh, This morning, we are continuing our look at Daniel chapter 10. Uh, As you know, last time we finished up what is probably one of the hardest paragraphs in all of Scripture, which is Daniel's Daniel's, uh, 70 weeks paragraph. And this week, we kind of continue into, we're jumping from the uh, frying pan into the fire, as even Daniel 10 and 11 and 12 all offer their own sets of complexities that we have to wade through. But this morning, as we're looking at this, we kind of find ourselves back into another place where Daniel is having another vision. Uh, He's had, uh, the majority of chapter 9 was that wonderful, glorious prayer that Daniel prayed. And then at the very end, of course, those last eight or nine verses, you get the vision that he has of the 70 weeks. And after that vision, now we are jumping right into another vision. And so that's where we are this morning. We We have gone from vision to vision to vision to vision. And we are continuing to move through this. And uh, just to reiterate how remarkable these, these chapters in Daniel are with regard to how human history played out after these were written, and to just kind of be amazed at how accurately Daniel is seeing human history play out before him through the revelation of God. Now, maybe it shouldn't amaze us because God is a supreme being who knows all, sees all, and so it, it should, it, we should say, well, of course this would be accurate because God is the one giving it, right? Because God, who is the creator and sustainer of all things, is the one giving the vision. So rather than amaze us, it should just, we should just say, amen, of course this is right. Of course this is accurate because it comes from God. But without further delay, let us turn our attention now to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 1, beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uthaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves." So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. 
Father, your word is before us. Use it now to transform us. Cut through the depths of who we are. Get to the core of our hearts that we would be made new. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In Luke chapter 10, you have this Jesus is commissioning the 72 disciples to go out to the cities and towns and villages to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. But he gives them a very curious command when he tells them to go out. He says, what does he say? He says, carry no money bag, carry no knapsack, don't take an extra pair of sandals. In other words, take nothing with you. Go and preach, which is what he's telling them to do. He said, go and preach, go and proclaim, but take nothing with you. What a very curious command, because certainly they would need food, they would need money. If sandals broke, it would be nice to have an extra pair of sandals. Jesus knew what they needed. Why why was he teaching them that? Why did he tell them to do this? He wanted them early on to learn a lesson about the sufficiency of God. He wanted them early on to learn this lesson that where God sends them, God is going to provide for them. God is sufficient to give them or to supply what they needed. It was a very big act of trust and faith on the disciples' part. They are going out. They're going out with no resources, trusting that along the way they will find them. And, of course, we know that they did. What a wonderful lesson for them to learn early on is that God is sufficient. This is not the only place we learn of the sufficiency of God. We get a very similar note in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, when Jesus is telling his disciples not to be anxious or to worry, but to trust if God clothes the, the grass of the field with the lilies, how much more does he care for you? What is Jesus telling his disciples? God, Yahweh, the Lord is sufficient to care for you? When Paul is crying out about the thorn in his flesh, and he asked three times, take this away from me. I mean, can you imagine the pleading of this man who didn't love this thing that he had to deal with? Paul pled with the Lord three times, and what was the Lord's answer? My grace is sufficient for you. So we could say that one of the thematic teachings of the Bible as a whole is about the sufficiency of God. The very thing that, if we are honest, we often doubt If I have to walk through this, am I really going to be able to? Is God really going to be with me? Am I actually going to be able to withstand this? And the answer is no, without God's sufficiency. But with a sufficient God, the answer is absolutely. Now, does that mean everything and circumstances are always going to work in your favor that you love and are pleasurable? Absolutely not. But those unpleasurable, disliked circumstances says nothing about the sufficiency of God. Ask anybody who's experienced hard trauma, probably, you know, death or or, or disease or, or something equally bad, how do you get through that? And so often, only the Lord, only the Lord has carried me through those deep valleys. And it's not something, beloved, I think that we can prepare for beforehand. It's just that when we are being sent out with no resources and asked to trust the Lord, that the Lord gives us grace in those moments to see just how sufficient He actually is. We are entering into what is the final vision of Daniel. Uh, As I've said before, or as I've said before with other visions, this vision has all the complexity, all the mystery, and all the hope of all the other visions. 
And this is what we're looking at here, what we just read a few moments ago, is God's revelation through Daniel to do what? To do the same thing we've been talking about, to give hope in hard times. God is revealing his work, he's revealing his plan, his will through Daniel to remind his people, yes, there are going to be peaks and valleys. Yes, there's going to be hardship and hard times, but you have hope because I am structuring all this for my glory and for your good. But of course, maybe you're they're saying, well, Brad, it just seems like Daniel has been revealing way more hardship than happy times. And if you say that, you'd be absolutely right. Because when we look at Daniel, it's more consistent with life in this world not that we can never be happy. Not that we never have happy times. We do. I have happy times all the time. But Daniel is giving us a sobering picture of what the world is really like and what we can expect even as God's people. Why does God keep revealing hardship? Well, I'll tell you why. That we might live soberly. Right? That you and I might live soberly. Being called. We're, we're called to act in times of trouble. When God is laying out, this is what the world is like. The world will hate you as it hated me. The world will seek to do you harm like it did to do me, like it did me. And so when we think about it, what he's doing for us is giving us the playbook of the world and culture that you and I might be ready to make our stand when our time of trial comes. It's exactly what he's doing for Daniel. And he revealed it through Daniel for us so that when our time of trials come, we can make a stand. So he does it that we might live soberly, but he also does it, I'm telling you, he does it to say, hey, hard times are coming, but just remember that I am sufficient for you. When those hard times come, I've told you that they're coming, and I'm not going to leave you there. I'm not going to abandon you. But here's what's going to happen, beloved. Satan is a whisperer. He's an accuser, and he's a liar. You know what his favorite lie is? It's to whisper in your ear and in my ear that when those trials come, you're alone. God is not with you. You're isolated. You're by yourself. And so often we, we, we listen to that and we believe it, but believe Daniel this morning. Believe Daniel today. Believe Luke chapter 10. Believe Matthew chapter 6. Believe the letters of Paul that God is sufficient and you're not alone. You're not alone, and I'm not alone. God sustains us always through everything, and the world and the times we live in are hostile, but we have hope precisely because we have an all-sufficient God. And so as much as Daniel is about hope in hard times, and it is, it's also about the good grace of God's revelation, that God reveals his plan, that God reveals his will, that God has revealed his word to us, that God takes time to reveal it. Now, this is where we need to be on the same page, that God even takes time to reveal it should tell us much about the heart of God for his people, that God wants to let his people in, that God wants to make things plain so that we can see, that God wants to pull back the curtain of the world and say, no matter what it looks like on the outside, here's what's going on underneath, and you need to see it. It's no wonder that God gives us this framework so that we can have this biblical worldview so that we're not just left to ourselves, that we're looking at the world through the framework of God. And so... God, delight, God doesn't delight in giving us bad news, but, beloved, he does delight in being honest. He does delight in, in helping us learn that hardship is a reality, that suffering is a reality. He doesn't want us to be caught off guard by that. He wants us to 
know the truth, and to remember that He is sufficient. So what is the true grace of revelation? That through all struggles and hardships, God reveals something in particular and specific. Through all the struggles and hardships, He never leaves or forsakes us. There's no greater psalm that sums that up better than Psalm 23. If you haven't read Psalm 23 lately, read it. And bathe in the reality that what God is telling you in that psalm is, I am your shepherd, I am sufficient for you, and I won't leave you. That's the message that we need to hear. So this morning, with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I won't foresee from those first nine verses, and it's this, that God is sufficient in our weakness, that God is sufficient for or in our weakness. What we're looking at here in Daniel this morning, this paragraph, we're really getting a sense for what it means for us to experience grace in times of trouble. Now, that's a very generic statement when we come to the Bible. So much of the Bible could be summed up in that one sentence, to experience grace in times of trouble. But that's what Daniel, this is the beginning of a, of a vision that is very large and complex, and he's trying to lay foundational stones right here to help us see, A, it's coming from God, B, God is going to help Daniel get through it. We'll see that more and more, that, that God is, is intimately present with Daniel as Daniel is experiencing this vision, walking him through it, so that he and us can, ex- can know what it's like to experience grace in times of trouble. And so, what could we say? What is it that keeps us confident in troubled times? Beloved of God, maybe you've never articulated it this way or thought about it this way, but what keeps you, what keeps me confident in troubled times? It's the sufficiency of God. It's the reality that I know in my head and my heart. I don't always live like I believe it, but in my heart of hearts, I know that God is able to do immeasurably more than all I could ask or think. I know that's true. And so in times of trouble, when I'm experiencing trial, when you are experiencing trial, we we not only need to know that here, we need to remember that here. And in fact, we need to thank God for it in our weaknesses. As I've already said, when we think about the revelation of God, it is a special grace. It's the revelation of His will. It's giving us insight into why why things are happening the way they are and what we can expect. So that's what we're dealing with here. This is revelation from God. Right here in the very first sentence, we get a contextual note. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel. I'll stop right there. So the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, would have been about 536 B.C. So that's where we are now, about 536 B.C. Now that's just a significant date because about two years earlier than this, was when the exiles began going home. So Cyrus would have sent home the first wave of exiles around 538. And so this vision takes place about two years after the first wave of Jews went back to, the home, to, to their homeland. Now, it's curious, isn't it? Daniel is still in Persia. He did not go back with his countrymen. I find this heartening. You know why? Daniel chose to stay in a pagan land with a pagan king surrounded by pagans to continue to be a light among the nations. This is a powerful thing. Now, perhaps Daniel wasn't allowed to go back, but we've got to, we've got to realize at this point he was an, a pretty old man. He had lived through three empires at this point. Well, well Medo-Persia is really kind of the same one, so it's two. He is an old man. Perhaps he couldn't go back, but I love the fact 
that he is in Persia continuing to make a stand and preach truth about God. Well, what an what a example for us as we think about how do we, how do we live in, in a dark place? How do we live in a culture of death? Beloved of God, we stand on the truth and we continue to shine for Jesus. Daniel is shining for Yahweh here in Persia. As I said to you a moment ago, this is the final vision of Daniel. This vision will actually cover 10, 11, and 12. It's the last vision that Daniel has recorded, and so this will take up the remainder of the book. I love the fact that he refers to himself here. A word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. Why mention that name? Because that was a Babylonian name. Well, I think he's doing this for a very specific reason. Why mention that it was Belteshazzar? Well, A, Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar in Daniel chapter 1 by the Babylonians. In Daniel chapter 10, that same Belteshazzar is still doing what he did in Daniel chapter 1. What is this doing for us? It's reminding us of his faithfulness throughout the ages and the decades of years in these pagan kingdoms. Yes, Belteshazzar, who was faithful in Daniel 1, is still being faithful in Daniel 10. It's a legacy of faithfulness. It's reminding us it's that Daniel, that one, that exile, that one who served Nebuchadnezzar is still serving faithfully to the glory of God. And it says a word was revealed to Daniel. Why is that important? Those passages are important. This is not Daniel's word. This is a word from God to Daniel. So this is not Daniel's word. This is God's word coming through Daniel so that we understand this, the word of God. And he says here, he says, revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true. And it was a great conflict. But why is it true? Well, because it comes from God who is truth. It comes from God who is truth. It has to be true because God is the truth itself. But what else does it do? It says the word is true, and I'll get to this great conflict here in just a minute. It says, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. Why? Because, well, A, because it's true, and the truth of God brings understanding to God's people. In other words, Daniel didn't just receive the word from God. He received understanding of the word from God. Beloved, that's how it works. That's how it works in God's economy. How do we know what God means? Well, he shepherds us through his word by the Spirit so that we have understanding. Daniel has understanding. But this, this word here, great conflict, is very interesting. Um, it's debated in terms of what it means. I think the ESV is just translating it literally, which is perfect. Because what is a great conflict? Well, there's two ideas we could take from this. As, as we're going to see later on in the paragraph, it was a great conflict to Daniel because it drained him physically, literally physically drained him. So it was a conflict to him. But what it's also doing is revealing the fact that there are great conflicts ahead in the earth and on the earth and for the people of God. And so not only was it a conflict physically on Daniel, it was the revelation of conflict to come. So you kind of got a little bit of double entendre there. It's kind of going two different directions that both are right. So that's kind of what we're dealing with when it comes to that, that great conflict. In fact, just by way of reminder, uh, he says in verse 8, my radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. So he's telling you that this vision was physically taxing on him. So then he goes one step further. He says, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. Why? Why was he mourning? Well, there are, no, there are no textual clues as to why this mourning was happening. 
So we're left. I think there's a couple of conjectures that I think are reasonable and could be the reason why. One is at this point in the return, Jews were going back in relatively small numbers. In other words, too many of his countrymen had adapted to life in these pagan countries and imbibed that culture and just decided to assimilate in Persia or assimilate in in Babylon and just be assimilated to a a different country, a different um, set of religions or a different religion and a different set of laws. That could be one reason. And another reason he could be mourning is of the Jews who did go back, they faced such opposition that the rebuild of Jerusalem at this time had stalled. Not, Not much was happening. So, of course, those seem reasonable to me as to why he's mourning, why he is lamenting. But this three weeks, he says, he gives you a description of what it meant to mourn for those three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So you've got a picture here of fasting. Daniel is fasting. And of course, we understand that he's also been praying, so we know we could say he fasted and prayed, but what is he doing? By fasting and telling you he's mourning, he's telling you he's in a three-week season of lament. He's at a place of lament. And you know what it reminds me of? Beloved of God, sometimes lament is the only proper response to what we see in front of us. It's regrettable that the modern-day church, at least in our context here, I'll just speak to where we are here in America, has lost the good art of lament. You know why? Because we live in a therapeutic culture. We live in, in, in in a culture of you know, this pill will fix it type mentality, and people want to skip the lament and get to the relief. And beloved of God, we need the lament. We need to be sad sometimes. We need to look at the world and be broken over it. We need to look at our fellow Christians who are falling and not judging them and weeping for them, weeping for pastors who are falling, weeping for people who are given in to sin, and, and begging God for their repentance and their heart to be changed. So Daniel is properly lamenting what he sees before him. He's looking at a world that is lost in debauchery and all sorts of other sins. And he's seeing his countrymen who've imbibed it. And then the countrymen who did have the courage to go home, they're quitting because it's hard. And so he laments. We should lament sometimes, you and me. The Psalms are beautiful guides. The biggest corpus of lament literature we have in the Bible is in the Psalms. let's Let's weep But beloved of God, here is where the people of God have to come to, though. We need to weep sometimes. We need to lament sometimes. But we've got to come back to joy in the Lord because he is good and right and faithful. The Psalms say, yes, cry out to God, but come back to praise and worship. Lay your heart bare, but come back to the heart of God with joy and thanksgiving. So, yes, we need to learn how to lament. Because when we are sad, or disappointed, we need to express, be able to express the sadness and disappointment, but also put our hope and trust in God. So Daniel was mourning, and he says, then on the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river Tigris. Why is he he telling you this? Well, you know, he's telling you this to give this a note of authenticity. He's giving you contextual, he's telling you the year that it's come, he's telling you where he was, he's telling you what he's doing. 
Those are not things that would normally be tied to fictional literature, especially at this time period. He is giving you details so that you know, I was there and this is what I saw. I wasn't, you know, he could have said he was anywhere, but he specifically says on the Tigris River, not the Euphrates or not anywhere else. So he's given us this idea of, of authenticity by telling us the date and the place. Now, then we get to verses 5 and 6. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. When you read that, your first question is, okay, who is, this, who is he describing here? What, who, who, what being is Daniel seeing? Well, actually... Verses 1 through 9 give you almost no clues as to who this is. Now, we have some, I know that we probably all automatically are jumping to what we think it could be in our minds, but as we look at the text, there are three theories that exist of who this could be. One is that it's a theophany, that is an appearance of God in bodily form in the Old Testament, that you're looking at God in some, in some sort of image. That's one theory. Another theory is you've got a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, that you're looking at not the father but the son in his pre-incarnate state who's appearing to Daniel during this vision. A third option is that it's an angel. Maybe it's Gabriel or some other sort of archangel who's appearing to Daniel in this hour bearing a message. Now, there are some reasons that people, people who, when it's described as the linen robe with the golden belt and that Ufaz, if that's a place, we don't really know where it is, but I think really... That Uphaz was a place where gold was mined. And really, when we think about the belt of the gold of Uphaz or Uphaz, let's think about a belt of pure gold. And maybe some of your Bible translations will say that. Because that's what it's getting at. It's getting at the quality of the gold by mentioning the place. So there's that little detail. But the, the garb that this being has is, is kind of like the garb of a high priest with the robe and the belt. And so he's kind of functioning in this role of mediating a message from God to Daniel. Now, that's one thing. But... To his appearance, if you will notice, his body was like, his face was like, his eyes were like, his arms and legs were like, the sound of his words was like. Five times the comparative word like is used. <laughs> Do you know why? Because Daniel can't tell you what it is. He can only tell you what it's like. He can't tell you exactly what it is that he's looking at. He can say, well, it's like this. And it's like this. And when we read that, it's, it's like this, but not quite. It's like this, but, but not quite. It's something greater than what I'm telling you it's like. That's what he's doing. The same will happen in other places. But for those who see this as an appearance of God or pre-incarnate Christ, they, they look to certain scriptures. One set of those scriptures is found in Ezekiel chapter 1. In Ezekiel chapter 1... Verses 26, 27, and 28. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it as gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. 
like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, or the or glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So some people who think that this is describing God in Daniel 10 will point you to Ezekiel chapter 1 and say of the similarities. Others who think it's the pre-incarnated Christ will point you to Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, because there are some similarities to how John describes Jesus in that revelation. Those who think of it as an angel say he's got this beatific appearance. He's got this glorious appearance because he ministers in the presence of the glory of God. He is a true reflection of the one who made him. And because often, we, I think sometimes we have a hard time viewing that as an angel because we think of angels as little cherubs who fly around with little bow and arrows. And when the Bible talks about angels, that is not the picture that it paints. It is more like this. Creatures who would scare the daylights out of us if we encountered them in a dark alley. Like, we would not want to be there. It would be terrible. Which is why when, oftentimes when people see angels in the Bible, we're told, I was fearful because I'm looking at this. There are some reasons that some who think this is an angel, and if you let your eyes drift down to verse 11 in chapter 10, and he, this is the creature or the being talking to Daniel that he just described, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. So he is, the word there, the word there about speaking to you is he's basically saying, I was sent with a message for you. Or if you let your eyes go down to verse 13, the prince of, he's still talking, the being is still talking, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. What people who view this as an angel would say is because you've got this one who comes as a messenger to Daniel, and you have this one who says that I needed help defeating the prince of Persia, that you're probably dealing with a, another archangel that works in tandem with Michael. In fact, that is the, that's the view I hold for that very reason. Now, we're going to see an appearance of one like a son of man coming up soon, but for the reasons I just listed to you, verses uh, 11 and 13, I tend to see 5 and 6 as a dazzling heavenly being who is an angelic creature who's been sent to reveal God's word to Daniel. Now, all this happens, and Daniel tells us something, and I, Daniel, in verse 7, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So what Daniel is telling you here is that he was alone in the midst of the vision. This is an interesting. The vision appears. The men feel it, right? The men feel it, but they can't see it. There's something, we've seen this before. When Paul was on the Damascus Road and he is confronted by Jesus, only Paul can see it. The men who are with him can't see it, but they can feel the dread of it. They can feel the presence of God. Something within them knows something holy and righteous is here, and I don't want to be around it. I want to get away from it. That's why they hide. That's why they flee. That's why Adam and Eve hid from God in the garden after they had sinned. That is why the people in Revelation ask for the rocks and mountains to fall on them rather than be confronted with the presence of the living and righteous God. Because the human response to God's presence, especially those not washed in the blood of Christ, is to depart, to leave there, which is exactly what his companions did. That is the consistent biblical pattern for sinners. 
But what I love here is he mentions that he was alone twice. I was left alone. He says, I was left alone, or I alone saw the vision in verse 8, so I was left alone and saw this great vision. Do you know what we're being reminded of here? Daniel is alone, right? There is no one there to help him. There is no extra resources from him to draw from. There he lays bare with nothing between himself and the message of God, with nothing between himself and the messenger of God. So he has nothing to turn to but God alone, but God himself. That's his only hope. And I think that's the point of this, beloved. His strength has been zapped. His features have been changed. There's no one else around. They've all left him, and it's him and the Lord, exactly the way the Lord designed it. You know why? Because the Lord says, you'll have no sufficiency in Persia. You'll have no sufficiency in men. You'll have no sufficiency in your own strength. Your sufficiency will come from me. I alone will raise you up. I alone will send you out. I alone will give you a message. And I alone will empower you to to proclaim it. What a beautiful picture we have here in Daniel. If we look, if we read back through the entirety of this paragraph and even further on in the chapter, we will understand that the revelation is from God, the understanding is from God, the insight, it's all, it all comes from Yahweh. And that's the point. So often we can live our lives with this idea that, yes, we need God, but we also need fill in the blank. When we think in terms of salvation, we would call that a Jesus plus theology. Yes, I need Jesus for salvation, but I also need whatever people try to add to it. We live our lives practically that way. And what a consistent biblical message is, well, no, God has all we need for life and growth. God has all we need for life and growth. Now, this is not Brad telling you just to let go and let God and and have no responsibility. That's not biblical either. We're called to live for God in his kingdom, but we also need to understand that we need to help constantly get rid of this mindset that, yeah, I need God, but I also need, we, just, we need God. Well, Brad, are you saying that we shouldn't have jobs and own house? No, I'm not saying that at all. Have a job. Pay your bills. Right? Be, be wise with your money. Be responsible. Be kind. Be charitable. But, but let us come to this idea, this childlike faith of, God genuinely has all I need for life and growth, and I can depend on him and his sufficiency. Lastly, Daniel says this at the very end. We are told that his radiant appearance was fearfully changed. He retained no strength. And he heard the sounds of his words, and he heard the sound of the words that fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So the vision took his strength, it took his splendor. You know what it's telling us? That it it just completely reduced him. Completely reduced him. There he was before the Lord with nothing, no strength, no splendor, no glory of his own, no capacity to stand. Why? He is now broken down to the point where God will raise him up. God will give him capacity to understand. God will give him splendor and radiance. It's a beautiful picture. It's something that is unique to Daniel here but in some ways, something we all must have. God knows I need it. I need to be broken down constantly. But in his weakness, here he is before the Lord. And his, all he brings to the Lord is his weakness. Beloved, so should we. Let us bring our weakness 
to the Lord. Let us not come with treasure saying, God, look how great I am. No, let us come with empty hands. God, look how worthy you are. Thank you. This final note that he was asleep, I've brought this out before. The root of that word is connected with the word in Genesis 2 where Adam is put to sleep when Eve is created. It is also connected with Genesis 15 when Abraham falls into a deep sleep and he has the vision of God. And so here again, when God is working, he is asleep. And it's more like a trance-like state. But you know what I love about this? What is our weakest moment? When are, we, when are we completely defenseless? When we're asleep. When we're asleep. And it's in those moments that God is working. It is in those moments that Yahweh works. Beloved, what would I say to you from this opening paragraph? That God's sufficiency is our best strength. That God's sufficiency is our best strength. You know, so often in our culture, the sign that we have arrived or are healthy is when we become that, the favored word, self-sufficient. In fact, people uh, in our culture justify all kinds of horrendous acts based on whether someone is self-sufficient or not. And it burns me up. So when we become self-sufficient, we can do for ourselves, we are said to be mature or perhaps fulfilling our purpose. Now, I want to I be clear. Paying your bills is, is good. You should do that. If you need groceries, hey, don't buy that toy. Go get groceries. So there's all kinds of practical things that, yeah, you need to be self-sustained so that you can provide for your needs. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in God's economy, self-sufficiency is a non-thing because we aren't self-sufficient. God has intentionally made us to be sufficient, find our sufficiency in him. Self-sufficiency is not our goal because ultimately that is an impossibility. In fact, the more we grow in our faith, and the more we grow in our knowledge of God, the less self-sufficient we should become. So we are moving in the opposite direction. We live in sin thinking, I can do this by myself, and we come in grace saying, I can do nothing of my own accord. I mean, even the good works I do, according to Ephesians chapter 2, are prepared beforehand by God. So those good works we boast in, let us return praise to our King and Lord. God is not aiming to call and save strong people. Jesus even said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. Because those people generally are blind to their need. His prerequisite for us is that we be weak because we live by the strength of another. Beloved, Jesus came to us in weakness. He identified with us in weakness. He lived out all the implications of weakness that he might avail to us the sufficiency and strength of God. And if you have that this morning, you have the best grace you could ever have. Amen and amen. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you so much for its power, its truth, its goodness, its faithfulness. And it is sufficient for us. Help us to know it, to live it, to believe it, and to repeat that cycle every day. Oh, Father, speak greatly to our hearts this morning. Speak to mine. Help me remember your faithfulness and goodness, that you truly are sufficient for all that we need. We thank you for your word and its power, and it's through Christ we pray. Amen.